0: In our contemporary culture, you can find all sorts of ideas and kind of pictures of who Jesus is or who Jesus was. Many of these are basically caricatures. They're, they're kind of the extremes of what people think. And one of the caricatures you find most often today is this picture of Jesus um, only being gracious and gentle and meek. People latch on to his teachings of Jesus' turning the other cheek and the fact that he allowed himself to be placed on the cross. And and they use that and construct this idea of Jesus that looks much more like a pacifist or a hippie or a pushover than anything else. And it certainly is true that Jesus was perfectly meek and perfectly gentle and kind and good. We've already seen him described by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. And there's very few, th- few things less intimidating than a lamb. But our God is an incredible God. He is a multifaceted God with many attributes. And while Jesus is indeed the lamb that was slain, he is also called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And a lion is much different from a lamb. Last week we saw Jesus' incredible compassion and mercy as he miraculously saved this newlywed couple from a disastrous beginning to their wedding But today we'll witness the passion and zeal and even righteous anger of the Son of God. And what will be most important for us pinpointing this morning is what exactly Jesus is angry about. Not the fact that he is angry, but what is he angry about? And so we're going to be picking up in John chapter 2 in verse 13 this morning. And here's what it says. John 2, 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those that were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So let's first establish the setting of this event right here. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it's safe to assume that his disciples were with him, unless scripture tells us otherwise, because that's what disciples did. They followed their master everywhere he went. And at this point, they had been following Jesus for about a week. But now they travel from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover. You know, Jerusalem was an important city, has always been. It was the site of where the temple of God was. And the temple was where God's presence manifested itself on earth. And all Jewish religion revolved around the temple. And the temple was originally built by Solomon nearly a thousand years before, but then the Babylonians destroyed it. And then it was rebuilt on a much smaller scale in the account that we find in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. But that temple, too, was later on raided and left in really terrible condition until Herod the Great came along and completely renovated it and expanded the size of it. And that is the temple that we find in Jesus' day. And it cannot be overstated how important the temple was to the Jewish people. It was at the temple that sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. They couldn't be made anywhere else except at the temple. The very presence of God resided in the innermost part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. It was the center of the entire religion and society of the Jews. And the temple was also run and maintained by by a whole host of priests and Levites. And the chief priest was in charge of all of it. And Jerusalem wasn't an enormous city at the time, but it was still probably several hundred thousand people. So a decent sized city. Um, that many people living in or around Jerusalem. But during the Passover, the population of Jerusalem could swell to over a million people. So quite a few people coming in to the city. It's almost like imagining if 800,000 people all of a sudden traveled to Mobile on the same weekend or the same week, all looking for places to stay and things to eat. Just an incredible amount of people coming in to one city at a time. And they're all coming from all over the Mediterranean to be present for the Passover. And if you aren't familiar with the Passover, it was a religious holiday, um, really the most important religious holiday for the Jews. The Passover was observed in observance of what God had done in the, the last plague Of the Egyptians back in Exodus twelve. In that plague, God said that he would kill the firstborn male son of any household in Egypt. But he also told the Jewish people, the Israelites, that if they would take the blood of a spotless animal, most likely a lamb or a goat, to spread it over the doorpost, then their their houses would be spared. And God also commanded him to observe this event for all generations going forward, to remember this day and to follow it with a feast that lasted seven days. And so this is what Passover was. They were remembering what God had done to the Egyptians and in so doing freed them from slavery. And so each year at Passover, Jews would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem from wherever they were living. And they would need to have two things with them. They need to have an animal for sacrifice And for the males that were 18 or 19, they would need to have a tax, money for the temple tax. And the Passover being mentioned in the Gospels is helpful for us to keep track of Jesus' ministry chronologically. In the Gospel accounts, we find three different Passovers, and it happened once a year, so it helps us see that Jesus' ministry lasted about three years. And we'll also begin to see, as we continue through the book of John, that Jerusalem, and the temple in particular, are places of tension and conflict for Jesus. Anytime Jesus shows up at the temple or in Jerusalem, tension is soon to follow, and it's always conflict between him and the religious leaders of the Jews. And so the tension is set in this story by the fact that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem— He finds that oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and money changers are present in the temple. And it doesn't seem like something that would be in a temple, right? It doesn't seem like the right setting for that. Why would they be conducting their business there? Historical evidence shows that originally the sacrifices for the Passover, the animals were sold across the valley, across the Kidron Valley, and that's where people would purchase their animals and then bring them to the city. But now all the business has been brought into the temple itself. And no doubt, it's because it was profitable and convenient. And although John doesn't specifically mention it here, we understand from Jesus' other encounter in the temple in Matthew 21 that the business being done here was less than honest. When Jesus encounters the temple in Matthew 21, he accuses them of turning his father's house into a den of thieves. Not something that you would accuse someone of if they're actually doing honest business. You see, the temple system, including all the priests and Levites and the temple guards, were funded and sustained by the temple tax and by the sacrifices. And those two things were required of everyone coming to the Passover. And so exploitation was easy and simple. If someone was traveling for days to get to Jerusalem by foot, it's a lot more convenient to be able to purchase your animal for sacrifice in Jerusalem rather than trying to tote that animal with you all the way along the journey. And plus, they didn't accept just any animal for sacrifice. You couldn't show up with your three-legged, one-eared blind goat and expect them to accept that as an acceptable sacrifice. It had to be a perfect animal, and they were pretty stingy about their requirements. And so you were often forced to buy only what they were selling at the temple. It's like going to a sporting event. They don't let you bring any food or drink from the outside. And then they're charging four or five times the price inside. And you tell yourself, I'm not going to buy it. But then you do because it's all you have. You spend $15 on a hot dog because it's the only option. And that's what was happening in this temple. In the first century, historian Josephus, he, he recounts that nearly a quarter of a million animals were sacrificed during the Passover. I mean, that's a lot of animals being bought and sold. And then they also have to pay the temple taxes, But of course, the temple only accepted a special kind of currency. They wouldn't accept the Roman coinage because since it had the Roman emperor's face on it, they considered it to be unclean. And so they had a particular temple coinage. And so people coming from all over the Mediterranean would have to exchange their currency at an exorbitant rate for the temple currency but there was no other option. It was quite the setup for those that ran the temple to bring in a significant financial haul each year. And what was supposed to be a time of focusing on God and his greatness had been turned into a business. It had become a huge market and it was no secret what was going on. And on top of all that, there's no doubt that this was being done in the court of the Gentiles. And that's that, the most outer court of the temple. And it was called the court of the Gentiles because this is where people who were not Jewish or not the Israelites could come to learn more about the God of the Jews. Those who were seeking information about the one true God could come there and learn. But this place that was meant for seekers had been turned into a market. And that's the scene that Jesus finds in the temple. Instead of him finding a place that was dedicated to the worship and praise and adoration of the Almighty God, he finds a market filled with hundreds, if not thousands, of animals with all the noise and and mess and smell that brings with it. And in response, we see this sudden and surprising action by Jesus. It says he makes a whip out of cords, and with that many animals being bought and sold, it wouldn't be hard to find rope, pieces of rope on the ground. It says he gathered some cords and made... A whip, and then he goes about driving all the animals out of the temple. He's whipping animals, stirring them up and out of the temple. It says he's turning over tables, he's pouring out the bags of money of the money changers, and it's quite the scene. And imagine the amount of, of anger and passion that had to rise up in Jesus to push him to do this, and understand that this isn't sinful anger. Some people mistakenly think that sin uh, that it's a sin to be angry, but the Bible never says that. But the Bible does say, do not sin in your anger. But right here we have Jesus consumed with this righteous anger. And he tells those selling pigeons to get these things out. Don't turn my father's house into a house of trade. And Jesus isn't explicitly saying he's the son of God, but he does refer to God as his father. And it says his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So his disciples are witnessing their master all of a sudden um, just start uh, running all these animals out and turning over the tables. And, and it brings to mind a verse from Psalm 69, 9, and it's a direct quote from the Psalm of uh, David, but it was foreshadowing of Jesus. And, and when we find a psalm that's prophetic about Jesus, those are called the Messianic Psalms. And Jesus is consumed with zeal, with a passion and love for his father's house, and ultimately His passion and commitment to the Father will see himself completely consumed in his death on the cross. And of course, this incredible action taken by Jesus leads to an encounter with the Jews. And when we see the word the Jews there, we can usually assume that this is the religious leaders of the Jews. And in verse 18, it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? You know, when asking for a sign, they're essentially saying on whose authority or by what authority are you doing these things? Who gives you the right to do this? Perhaps Jesus looked like a prophet, or because he had disciples with him, they figured he must be someone of some authority, but they're asking for a sign to back it up. But Jesus doesn't give them one. He's, he's not just a magician who, who answers to anyone who uh, gives him a coin to do a trick, but instead he does say he will, he will give them a sign eventually. He says, destroy this temple, and he will raise it up in three days. And they think he's crazy. And, of course, it does sound crazy. How, how can a temple that took 46 years to be built possibly be rebuilt in just three days? But then John inserts his own comments here in verse 21 saying, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So John is candid as a writer, and he admits that the disciples, including himself, they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about here when it actually happened. It wasn't until after the resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit that everything made sense. It wasn't until later that they connected the dots. But now they can look back and see that Jesus wasn't talking about the actual physical temple. He was talking about his own body. And this early on in Jesus's ministry, really the first week of his ministry, he's already has his mind on the cross. He knew his mission in the will of the Father. And just like last week, we saw that Jesus is signaling that something better is coming. In last week's passage, Jesus, we saw that Jesus is the perfect purifier. He repurposed the jars meant for ritual purification, and doing so was, was signaling that they're no longer needed. And now in this passage, he's referring to himself as the temple. Because after all, he is God. And in his death and resurrection, he'll make the temple obsolete. After the resurrection, the temple might serve as a physical place where people can gather together, but it is no longer the place where people have to go to encounter God. The veil that separated God was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that access to God was no longer restricted It's no longer mediated by a priest once a year. Now access to God has been granted to all who seek him, to every single man and woman who places her faith in Jesus. And that's because Christ has become the perfect mediator for us to God. And so in these two accounts, in this chapter, we find Jesus foreshadowing that the old way of doing things are at an end. But we also see him expressing this in two very different ways. At the wedding, we see Jesus responding in compassion and mercy for this bride and groom. But here in the temple, he responds in righteous anger and and outrage. But remember, at the beginning, I said that what's most important for us is to pinpoint exactly why Jesus is angry. Why is he so outraged to see them selling livestock and exchanging money in the temple? And it's because a place dedicated and constructed and set aside for the worship of God And the instruction of the word has been turned into something else. And in this case, it's been turned into a market. But the main issue is that this is no longer a place of serious, heartfelt worship. And this was even being done in the court of the Gentiles. This was the place where outsiders seeking God could come to learn more and be introduced to the one true God. But in this case, they would find it a bustling market. And what does that communicate about the God that's being worshipped there? And this should force us to ask two questions of ourselves this morning. One corporately and one individually. Two questions. The question we need to ask ourselves corporately as a body of believers is what does our worship communicate about God? What does our worship communicate about God? If someone who has never been in a Christian church came in these doors this morning and witnessed what we do, what would they walk away thinking about the God we profess to believe in and worship. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul, he's instructing the Corinthian believers and how they should use their gifts in the church and how they should worship in order and and properly and in unity. And he says that when they do that, when they worship um, properly and with unity, then outsiders who come in, unbelievers, would witness what they do and would leave saying, surely God is among them. And so we must ask ourselves, what does our worship communicate? The temple scene that Jesus found communicated that those in charge were most concerned about money and power and greed. And if those were the religious leaders, then, and that's how they acted, then that probably communicated to those seeking God that, that this God must care more about those who are powerful and who have. And he cares less about the outcasts and the poor and those who are less fortunate. And the truth is that we are the hands and feet of Christ. Jesus made the invisible God visible, as John told us in chapter 1, that no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, that being Jesus, has made him known. But now Jesus has returned to heaven, but he has left his church. He established his church. And so in a very real way, the church is now what makes the invisible God visible. We are the closest thing that This world will see to God this side of eternity. And so what are we communicating in our worship? Are we showing that we believe in a God who is alive and reigning? Or are we showing that we believe in a God that is dead and weak? Are we showing that we love one another unconditionally just like Jesus loves us? Or are we showing that we treat others just like the world treats people? Are we showing that we care about those in our community who are dead in their sins and we're willing to do anything to reach them or are we showing that we care more about our preferences and traditions and being comfortable are we showing that we believe in a god who uh, the spirit of god is present in our hearts and that in this very second he is active among us and wants to do something great in our lives or are we showing that we're settling for this mediocre form of religion in relationship with god And my hope is that when the world looks at Stapleton Baptist Church, that they would say that surely God is in this place. My hope is that the world would see a group of people that are radically passionate about loving God, loving people, and making disciples. People that are serious about holiness and honoring God in everything we think, say, and do. People who are serious about reaching the next generation and making sure that every child who comes through these doors would leave Um, For college or for the workplace, knowing Jesus as their Savior. People that are serious about the Great Commission and reaching our community for Christ and doing everything that we can to make this a place where people from all walks of life, no matter who they are, feel loved and welcomed when they come in these doors. So, what does our worship communicate about the God we profess to love and to serve? And the second question we must ask ourselves is an individual question Is our temple focused on God? Is our temple focused on God? Jesus foreshadowed that the temple made by man would no longer be the dwelling place of God. What he would accomplish on the cross would forever change how man interacted with God. And the tearing of the veil was a symbol that that had been accomplished. And then in the year 70, the temple was completely destroyed and has not been built, rebuilt since. For almost 2,000 years, the temple has remained in ruins but there is still a temple of God. But it's not quite the same as it was. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Christian, in here this morning, do you know that you are the temple of God? There's no longer a physical structure where God's Spirit manifests itself But instead, our bodies as believers, in a sense, has become the temple of God through the indwelling Spirit. And Paul, again, emphasizes this a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, saying, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. If you're a Christian in here this morning, your body, your life is not your own. It's not yours to do whatever you want to do with it. You were bought with a price, and that price was the blood of Jesus Christ. Our body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. So he says, glorify God with your body. So the question is, is your temple focused on God? Is your temple glorifying God? When people look at your life, do they see someone who's focused on the things of God or someone who's focused on just their own agenda? Do they see someone focused on accomplishing God's mission or someone focused on achieving success in the eyes of the culture? Do they see someone who shows the love and grace and forgiveness of God or someone who treats people according to the culture? Do they, the temple that Jesus encountered at Passover should have been a place reflecting the awesomeness and the glory of God of the God who was supposed to be worshipped there. It should have been a beacon piercing the darkness around them with the glory and the light of God. But instead, it reflected the most base desires of man for greed and for power and for convenience. So what are we showing with the temple of our bodies? And if we could just train ourselves to wake up each and every day with our mind being alert to the spiritual realities around us. So often, as soon as I wake up, my mind is consumed with everything that I have to get accomplished in the day. Of the emails I need to check, of the errands I need to run, of the of the bills I need to pay. I get so caught up in the temporal, in the urgent. And there's the risk that I, that I or we can go throughout a whole day without ever really thinking about the fact that that the Holy Spirit of God is within us and that God is at work all around us. It's possible to even go through the motions of religion, to show up on Sunday morning each and every week, sit through Sunday school, to sit through here and, and, and sing these songs and to, to listen to preaching and, and, and enjoy all of it and then just go about the rest of our week as if God is dead and doesn't even exist. We can do that and the whole time, live as if the God we serve is dead and still in the grave, when in fact the God that we serve is alive. He's defeated death, hell, in the grave, and he has placed his Holy Spirit within us to guide us, to teach us, to convict us, and to comfort us on a day-by-day, minute-by-minute, moment-by-moment basis. So what if this week we could, leech, we could live each and every day with that reality at the forefront of our minds? And the challenge for every single one of us in here this morning is to evaluate if we are pointing people to God in our lives. We're the closest thing to a temple of God in this world. It's our job to make the invisible God visible to those around us. And once we begin by focusing our individual lives on bringing glory to God, then collectively as we worship together and how we work together as a body of believers, it'll show the world how incredible our God is And that he's worthy of all the praise and all the adoration of all peoples. And may we be a church that reflects the true light and the true life of Jesus to the community around us. Would you join me in praying?